then I also had a couple Western hognose for a while, and then I found out I react to hognose bites. I got bit by one head swelling up past my wrist for like four days, so that wasn't going to fly. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. We are going live and we're going to wait because we always get cut off. Do to do boop ba do boop 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 ba do boop ba do. Wow! Happy Thanksgiving, everybody who's in America. (laughs) Yes, uh, actually, there was a couple. I think it was Colin and Mike's episode was trending in Finland. So shout out! Interesting. Yeah, I don't know what uh, what you guys are eating on this Thanksgiving. Their normal foods because they don't celebrate Thanksgiving. (laughs) Dried fish. Salted fish. The hell is dried fish? I don't know. You remember on the Amazing Race when they were in, uh, they were somewhere up there and in the Nordics and they fish. had to eat like this salted, disgusting dried fish that you looked know, terrible. No, but I'm really happy that you actually remember something from the Amazing Race because you always tell me how much you hate it. Yes, it is. And that shows me that you are actually uh, paying attention a little bit. It's nice because you get to learn about other cultures. Oh, like, that's why I love it. And yes. it's competition. And I wish it was something we could do once, but we never could. <laughs> How mad would we both Oh, we'd get? murder each other. We would come back not a couple. No, it would be terrible. We're both competitive, but also want to be in charge. So, so that's yes. really a bad combination. Yeah, but it works on a podcast. Look at that transition <laughs> yeah. back to today's Is episode. Is that what we're here for? Yes. Oh, maybe we're this not is a talk TV, about the maybe it's a TV critic uh, podcast. Probably. Uh, but if you like <laughs> kind of lame-ish shows, watch the amazing rates. <laughs> no, I think a lot or of watch Jeopardy like, like Dan. What? <laughs> <laughs> Dan always complains so, that our podcasts come on during Jeopardy time because he's really? an eight-year-old man oh, who wow, doesn't know DVR. I think Dan's probably one of the last people I thought would be a, into Jeopardy. What what's, is, a, what's a Jeopardy fan? Jeopard Trebe- mania. Trebecker. Yeah, Trebecky. sure. Let's go with that. Wow, this is a PortCityPythons.com. You can support this ridiculous podcast to keep on rambling about random things like we do. We have shirts available. We have springtails available. I think we're going to do a little something, something for Black Friday. Maybe we'll go, you know, last year I think we did 40% off all shirts. And I think that, that was borderline psychotic. With, <laughs> but. Maybe we'll do something close to it again. <laughs> I think I think we pretty much I put him to the point where like we broke even on the shirts, which which isn't that useful if you're if you're worried about actually trying to make money. But it is fun getting our shirts out there, and a lot of people bought them, so we'll probably do something similar. Probably keyword. <laughs> yeah, keep in mind this is like three days before. That it's Tuesday, and we haven't thought about it or talked about it at all. Yeah, life is too crazy. So. But we have talked about our podcast this week with <laughs> you see I'm doing a real good in the transitions, but not the follow through. Yes. Um, with Chris, who we've met through Instagram. Yeah, so right? Chris not only does he keep and breed corn snakes, but he is also a zookeeper. So Chris McIntosh of Enterprise Snakes. Enterprise Welcome to the Reptiles. podcast. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, so, yeah, tell us how you got started in reptiles. 
thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I am pretty much like a lot of other people that got into this. Um, I started out with a very big interest in like dinosaurs when I was younger, and I also always had a pretty big interest in anything that was kind of creepy crawly, insects, bugs, spiders, all that sort of stuff, and um, kind of transitioned once I got old enough to realize that I was never going to have a pet dinosaur. <laughs> the, ne- the next best thing was a pet you know, reptile, and that's when I kind of started really uh, gaining that interest. And not to mention, I have some family members who uh, have had a big interest in snakes. My uncle used to have boa constrictors when he was younger, so it kind of, that also kind of gave me a little bit of a, a push as far as reptiles goes, too. What was the first animal that you kept? Uh, Garson? Well, no. I had a Knolls when I was younger. I got them for, for Christmas one year. <laughs> I, I really wanted snakes, but my mom has always been terrified of them. Uh, so my aunt thought lizards is probably the best thing, and she brought me to a gnolls, obviously not knowing how you know shitty a gnolls can be as pets, um, especially green gnolls. I know some of the other gnolls species can be fine, but green gnolls are god-awful. Um, and... Then after that, I think I had Emerald Swiss and then kind of took a little break from college. And then that's when I, after that, it's when I really started going, going all in on the snakes. I think that's kind of funny that there was a time to where people got their first reptile. And now I think it's so often that they're steered to the Crested Gecko or the Bearded Dragon that are seriously nice. like good pets but back in the day it was like you get an annul yeah. you get a random wild call it you don't know what it is but it's always small and fast and it's like why yeah. did why yeah. were we always keeping these things that were like not a fun experience yeah i was also like 10 years old and just really like i had been like looking at stuff about reptiles but i wasn't really very like in you know in depth with like care and stuff like that so i just had these two tiny lizards that you know you know couldn't really was afraid to open the cage because i thought (laughs) one of them was gonna bolt out of the cage or something like that um i think my parents ended up beating them for the most part (laughs) (laughs) uh which probably wasn't the best care on my part but Again, I was 10, so I didn't know any better. Um, but yeah, eventually, I, I don't know. I think they maybe lasted probably maybe a year, which was, but yeah, I probably should have started with something a little bit better than Green Mills, but also my aunt didn't know any better either. So you started off a little rocky, but yeah, now you yeah. do it for a living, so that's yeah, pretty yeah. good. Yeah, turn it, turn it around. when did you decide that you wanted to pursue it professionally um i kind of when i got to college i didn't i mean i that interest in animals persisted you know throughout obviously through till now um but i when i got to college i also am a big sports fan um so i started off uh interested in sports management um 
a degree in sports management, but uh, once I actually got into the program and realized it was dumb and I didn't want to do it anymore, <laughs> uh, I you know left and then I started um, thinking about you know why not trying you know I have a real passion for animals. Uh, there are careers that you can pursue working with them. Um, so I went that route um, and really, uh, from there, really seemed to enjoy like, the classwork and I did internships and stuff like that. Um, and it really kind of cemented uh, wanting to pursue it as a career. So zookeeping, it's common to have a two-year degree, four-year degree, or what does it take kind of to get your phone um, Nowadays, you have to have uh, especially if you're going to work at one of the like the AZA accredited facilities, um, they want some sort of college degree. Uh, four-year degree is preferred. I have an associate's degree, so obviously it's worked for me. Um, and uh, there's a lot of um, schools, like especially community colleges that have the two-year degree that are more specifically for people uh, that want to do zookeeping, uh, so they're starting to kind of have a specialized. There's a Santa Fe teaching zoo down in Florida, and there's also um, David City Community College in North Carolina that are basically, and I think there's a couple, there might be one in New York and one in California that uh, you basically get a two-year degree in animal care. But those are programs to where it's respected to the point to where you can get Still, into yeah, it. Yeah, exactly, yeah, facility. yeah. So to where it may carry as much weight as a general biology degree yeah. or something, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of those uh, programs, since they're tailored to zookeeping, you also uh, work in all your internships and stuff like that. So you basically get your internships while you're getting your degree. Um, so it's a, it probably would be a little bit easier uh, right after you graduate to actually pursue uh, a job. Because there's like a required number of hours and things you have to do, right? Um, not necessarily. Uh, okay. I, I, I usually, if people are asking, I usually recommend doing like two or three internships uh, when they're if they're interested uh, and want if this. This is what they want to do uh, for their career, um, just so you get all the the prior experience uh, that zoos are looking for. Um, and also a lot of times I do, when people do graduate, and even if they do the internships, the zookeeping is highly competitive. It's, mm -hmm. There are a lot of people vying for a small amount of jobs. Uh, so sometimes you even have to uh, kind of take an animal care job that isn't zookeeping, which is the route I took. Um, I, when I graduated, I had to apply to like 30 or 40 zoos. Wow. And didn't get a single, even a single wow. interview. That's how competitive it is. Um, so I actually took a job working at uh, an animal lab at uh, Duke University first, just to get six months of paid animal care experience. Um, and is that basically just cleaning after rodents? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Sounds so fun. <laughs> <laughs> so exciting. 
it it was it worked right it, it, it worked yeah it. so it was worth it but it was pretty boring <laughs> is that something to wear when you first got into it i mean did you expect to have to just basically clean up after animals all day or it, i well i had done it like the internships beforehand so i kind of you get basically that's part of like doing the internships uh especially for me it was my first internship i hadn't fully decided whether i wanted to pursue zookeeping um so it really kind of gave me like an opportunity to kind of figure out like if this is exactly you know what i want to do uh you know get like all the hands-on stuff realize that you know it's labor intensive and there's a lot of cleaning involved and it's not i mean i pretty much knew that to begin with but it's not all you know just playing with the animals and that sort of stuff it's you know can be pretty tedious and grueling at times so what was your first internship i uh did an animal care internship at uh the good zoo in west virginia it's like a very tiny accredited zoo um, in the Ogilvy uh, Park. Like it's a resort in West Virginia and they have a zoo, um, which was probably, you know, a good place to start. A small zoo, you get to work with everything. It's much more kind of, you get to work closer with the zookeepers, um, much easier to kind of pick their brains and get you know, feedback from them uh, rather than working somewhere where you might see a zookeeper once every hour or so and uh, you're kind of just kind of stuck in one spot uh, working with a certain group of animals rather than kind of getting the ropes, you know, learning the ropes with everything. So even even with the inter internships and stuff, you didn't you didn't get that initial zoo job. So what um, are, and I mean, you obviously had to be willing also to like relocate to do internships and for jobs and stuff like yes, that. Yeah. That's, that is a, a very big thing is uh, especially because, especially if you're going to, you want to try and work in a, an accredited facility. Uh, they're not like, you know, there's three in Maryland total there's you know one in delaware so that's they're pretty few and far between and pretty spread out unless you live in a big state like new york or california or texas or something like that or florida um so yeah you have to be for the most part i kind of lucked out because i got one in maryland and i'm from maryland so a job there um so uh you do have to kind of while it's nice to be able to work where you live, sometimes uh, you do have to, if you really want to be a zookeeper, relocate to, to get a job. So that the first job at Duke, you actually moved to North Carolina from Maryland? So I was already in North Carolina because that's where I was going to school. And that's where I got my degree um, at a community college down there uh, that had an animal care program um so it wasn't much i was already down there so it wasn't much of a like a transition but um yeah then i 
after that is when I did that for six months. That's all the job was, was basically a six month temporary position. That's all I ever wanted because I didn't want to do it any further than that. So. And where did you end up working with Nathan, who we had on a, a couple of weeks ago? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I also, while I was in school down in North Carolina, I did an internship at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Yeah. Um, and he was, I guess he was a, they're called technicians or whatever, but he's basically their version of the suit keeper at the time. Um, so I worked pretty closely with him there. So obviously things like reptile breeders, like we're pretty close knit. We know each other. Do, I mean, zoo workers, zookeepers, I mean, do you guys kind of know each other? Uh, yeah, I, I, it's kind of, it depends. Um, I'm still pretty, uh, close with, uh, and know a lot of the people that I interned with when I was interned West Virginia. Um, and then you kind of through like professional development and things like that, you kind of meet other people that have kind of the same general interests as you. I went to uh, amphibian school recently uh, at Detroit Zoo, and I met a lot of people through that, met uh, a lot of people on the forefront of amphibian conservation, amphibian veterinary medicine, stuff like that. So we saw, we kind of generate contacts that way. And, um, try and kind of keep in touch. But usually the good thing about zookeepers is if you're visiting uh, an area or zoo, something like that, you can always just be like, hey, anyone, you know, work here, have time to show me around or whatever for a few minutes and that sort of a thing. And they're usually pretty willing to uh, take the time to show you around because zookeepers usually like to uh, hang around with other zookeepers yeah that makes sense <laughs> Excuse me. um earlier you mentioned how competitive if it i can't talk how competitive it was to get a job at a lot of these zoos. Mm-hmm. do you think that's because of the just lack of a space like there's not enough zoos to hire all the people <laughs> <laughs> or just pete or, or just it? that many people no no that wasn't my other one thank you for trying to finish me sentence. Or is it that the people hiring at these zoos are very particular about the people that they want working there? I think it's probably a bit of both. Uh, they, uh, because they get so many, you know, applicants for you know one job, they have the ability to be very stringy and picky with who they uh, prefer um, to hire. That makes sense. They right. They get to say no to fifty yeah. people to yeah. find that one because yeah. they know there's always going to be fifty more people. Yeah, exactly. Who want to, that makes sense. Kids. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you? Obviously, you know we're talking North Carolina, West Virginia, uh, Maryland. When did you start building your own personal collection throughout all all this? Um, time? So once I moved back to Maryland again and started working where I do now, uh, and I was gonna, I had kind of a spot solidified and a job that I 
was hoping to be at for the foreseeable future is when I really started to um, kind of start. I didn't initially start with corn snakes, but I uh, started building collections with other things and then kind of uh, made its way to the, the corn snake route. So what was kind of, can you explain some of that? What kind of species you tried? Why you ended sure. up going for corn snakes? Um, so I started out with um, Asian rat snakes. I, I was just waiting for you to say ball python, but <laughs> okay, that's interesting. I, I, I did keep two ball pythons and uh, it didn't last very long. Uh, I just ended up there. They weren't for me. I prefer bluebirds. Uh, so I did that. I did have two ball pythons very shortly. Realized that it wasn't for me. Uh, but mainly Asian rat snakes. Uh, mad the different. I kept the three bred. Kept and bred the three different Madagascar hog nose species. Um, for a little bit. So is uh, that? I'm sorry. Is that? Is the Madagascar giant hog nose? That's one species. Yeah. Is the speckled also in Madagascar. Yeah. And then the, okay. the, it's the giant, the speckled, and the blonde Madagascar hog nose are all the Madagascar species. Um, and then I also had a couple Western hognose for a while, and then I found out I react to hognose bites. Uh, my hand swelled up past, like, my head swelling. I got bit by one head swelling up past my wrist uh, for, like, four days. Uh, so that didn't wasn't going to fly. I didn't want to have to go to the hospital uh, on my own dime for a hog nose bite again. Uh, was that a Western or was yeah, that it was a Western? Yeah. A Western, but I basically, I still had, um, other rear fang species at the time, uh, including like Baron's racers and stuff like that. Um, so at that point I basically said, let's kind of nix that, uh, just in case. And <laughs> have you had adverse reactions to anything else? Like even no. like bee sting stuff like that? Anything no, like that? never, never. Then typically they say that people that react to uh, the hog nose bites are usually those that are like allergic to bee stings. And I'm not allergic to any of that stuff. So it was kind of a, a bit of a surprise. Um, so basically I, at that point I started kind of looking, uh, keeping something that's, you know, relatively easy to keep since I, have, you know, work 40 hours a week. Don't really have, I mean, I have some time in the afternoon, but like after work, but I didn't have a ton and I wanted to be able to do, you know, other things outside of work and just taking care of my collection. So corn snakes were, were an easy thing to keep. I do keep a couple other uh, like random species, little, the ones that are all behind me. The corn snakes are all coming to my right, um, but I keep a, a few things that are just for fun. But you know, corn snakes make up the main part of the collection. Sorry to to bring it back or to like bring it dark a little bit, but I mean, like, do you think as far as like the hog nose go? Obviously, 
they're sold at every reptile show yeah. to any single kid. You know, they're sold to plenty of kids all the time. I mean, is there something that we can do or should do to stop from like, what if you were, you know, that 10 year old kid and you got a hog nose as your first pet and then you have that same reaction? I, I honestly think it was kind of a stroke of bad luck that it happened. I, that hog nose had never bitten me before and it was just, you know, you know, bad luck. It bit me and it got me perfectly that it got those rear fangs like right on the first go and it took long enough for it to get, you know, for me to get it off my finger that it was able to do its job. Um, so, I mean, they're typically like great snakes, pretty calm. Uh, there are some that can be a little bit of jerks, but I, I mean, I think they're still fine and it's not like, you know, overly common for people to react to it anyway so um i don't see any problem with that you know being a pet for a younger kid gotcha because i don't know like i've never i mean obviously we had hog nose but <laughs> i couldn't ever really see them biting us for any reason they <laughs> kind of it, like i said it was just a, the wrong time of day I don't know. It was more hungry than it usually is. And maybe I had just, I don't even remember the circumstance other than it was kind of later in the day. I don't, maybe I was, had been feeding other snakes and just forgot that I was and didn't wash my hands or something. And it just smelled a rodent and went for my finger. But, fine otherwise yeah now how uh with the with the mad hogs and everything like that i mean how was it trying to find groups of those initially so it wasn't actually at the point in time that i had them madagascar was still pretty wide open so it wasn't overly difficult uh to get a hold of them there were i don't know five or six importers that were bringing in hognose. The giants were the easiest to get a hold of. Uh, and the speckled and blondes were a little bit harder to, to find. But at that point in time, it was still relatively easy. I had, I think I had, I had a pair of the giants and then I had trios of blondes and the speckles. Wow. So you had a good group of animals yeah. there. Yeah. And did you have to mess with doing any treatments or internal, external? I did, um, did treat, I didn't, I did treat external. Um, I probably should have treated for internal parasites, but I, I mean, I kind of kept them because they were imported pretty kind of separate from everything else. And I usually, took care of them last. So at that point I wasn't going back to uh, do anything else. So um, I was more concerned with uh, like mites and things like that, uh, that could really kind of carry throughout, you know, the rest of the collection and really devastated collection rather than anything internal since they're already living with it and seem to be doing fine. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know if people realize that obviously these animals always have yeah. these internal parasites. Obviously, you know, such a large amount of animals come from the wild from imported and mm-hmm. stuff like that with with parasites or you know, things like that and it's just the very fact of living in the natural environment. Yeah, if I if I was keeping them in the like the same vicinity as my captive bred stuff, I probably would have been more on top of treating them for internal parasites too, just because who knows what a worm from Madagascar would do to a corn snake or, you know, any other thing that lives in captivity its entire life and is from North America. Um, so, you know, it's just a, they're basically, they were kept separately, so I didn't really press it too much. And what kind of success did you have with those guys? I, I got the giants to breed, uh, once. Um, they're usually typically anything from Madagascar rain equals breeding. Uh, so you just have to like miss them pretty heavily. Uh, and basically daily, daily missings. I mean, I did, I think I did it like twice a day for, you know, a couple weeks and got the giants to breed and then produced. I think we had six offspring viable, you know, offspring from them. Um, but I didn't really have a ton of luck. I got eggs from speckled female, but they ended up being duds. And then I didn't ever get anything from the puns. Hmm. Because that's, that's something that I've heard, you know, mad hogs are hard to produce altogether but i've heard people say that they have had success with the giants but i haven't heard many people say that they've had success with the others i think i recently have seen a few captive bred flans and speckles out there but they do like you said they seem to be pretty few and far between um not very not very common yeah i i was just Taken back when I first saw that speckled, it's like uh, that yeah. one really. I really, really enjoy that animal. I don't know if I'd enjoy keeping it, but I like looking <laughs> at it. They just seem like kind of a handful. They, like, the giants were definitely a handful. They were the female was probably like five feet long or something ridiculous like that. Um, they're they're pretty big, and they can have an attitude sometimes like a western or even eastern can have uh but but they're actually but, like athletic yes they're yes. not like the east no they don't the just western. flop they don't just flop around they, they're actually like yes athletic like you said they can actually if they're in a mood and they don't want you around they'll come at you if they to let you know <laughs> yeah they're they're crazy awesome little animals and then so would you kind of, uh, how'd you go about starting the cord snakes? Was there particular projects you were interested in or anything? Um, at that point, when I first started, there wasn't. I kind of just uh, perused like Don Soderbergh's available animals and a couple other breeders. What they had uh, really looked at like what adults were available at first um, and just picked out stuff that I liked. 
Um, it wasn't until probably two years later when Don was selling off a lot of his buff stuff that I really started to get pretty particular about what I was purchasing and what I wanted to, to keep collection wise. Yeah, I feel myself saying buff stuff maybe a little <laughs> bit too much. But yeah, yeah. That's but I always refer to it the same way. Like, yeah, we got some of that buff stuff. And I, I get I get looks sometimes at some <laughs> reptile shows when I say that. But it's like, uh, yeah. So, did what struck you about the buff in particular? Just that it was something new, or it was it was something new. Um, I think part of you know. The intrigue was that there wasn't a whole lot of combinations being made or had been made yet. Um, so there was that opportunity to kind of like be on the forefront of, you know, producing different combinations and kind of uh, just like being able to play with all the genes and see what happens. And I mean, I haven't seen, and it's bad because I, I have buff, but do you, what, combinations exist right now because all i really see is amel besides i mean i know you have some other stuff but <laughs> i saw that stuff but uh amel buffs i mean i see that everywhere people call them oranges yeah but i don't really see much of anything else so there when i was first getting into that uh buff that was pretty much email buff and hypo buff were pretty much the two things that were and Buff to Sarah were pretty much the two things that or three things that were really uh, produced so far. Um, but as far as I know, at this point, I mean, I have a few things tucked away. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Dude, that, that red factor buff is just yes, ridiculous yeah, looking. Yeah. Um, I, I have a Snow Motley buff. Uh, Buff to Sarah. I have an older Amel buff. I have two Buff to Sarah Motleys. I have Amory buff. I have, like you said, the Red Factor buff. Um, and then a few things that I produced this year. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, as you know, you probably know buff can be in the ass sometimes to try and figure out what's going on. Um, I have way too many of these damn animals <laughs> trying to figure out what they are, dude. Yeah. You, uh, so I have what I think is an Amory Dilute buff to Sarah. I have for sure an Amel buff to Sarah Motley. Uh, maybe a Dilute buff to Sarah and then possibly a Dilute buff to Sarah Motley. Um, those are all my holdbacks from from this breeding season. So they're starting to, and I also have uh Sunkiss buff too, and that's one of the another um another breeder out there that does uh breedings with buff has been doing a lot with Sunkissed and Buff. So he has I know he's produced hypo Sunkiss buffs and Sunkiss buffs as well. Yeah, I may need to see some pictures of the Henry <laughs> Dilute buff. Yeah, I, I can I can send you some pictures. But I'm not so so. I'm not the only one who has a little bit of trouble with it, and is it. I, I, I mean, I. It's just so subtle. Just, yeah, it is. It is definitely you. I 
I've gotten to the point where I'm probably 80% uh, success rate as far as like picking them out when they first shed out. Uh, but yeah, typically to really start to see the like the colors come through, you have to give it a, like one or two sheds, which can make it for some people less desirable as far as breeding goes. But um, once you see like, you know, what it produces and what it makes, especially, you know, a super vibrant orange snake that pretty much holds that color the, their entire life. Um, hopefully it'll become a little more common for people who just want to keep a, you know, a pet snake. Yeah. And I'm always, I'm always confused at pretty much what we cater to as well, because I think corn snakes are in that, I think it's a fun range to where you can sell a snake to someone who's looking to breed it. It has, yeah. you know, amazing genes, all this other stuff. But you can also find someone who's willing to buy a pet for that same price. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that seems to be the nice thing. Although I, I, I feel like it's still, you know, it's for whatever reason is still being, you know, overshadowed by all the even though it's corn snakes are still you know super common it's still getting overshadowed by ball pythons and bearded dragons and leopard geckos and all that purely i i find it purely just based on the fact that when they're hatch out they're like six inches long and weigh you know three grams instead of like a ball python that's you know you know you know twice as big it's something a little bit easier i know a lot of people especially if they're buying the first pet for their kid they're going to go with something that kid can't easily you know, squish in their fingers but uh, i i think it's kind of they're slowly regaining the popularity that they seem to once have um, and hopefully kind of continue that way i think colubrids in general are starting to make the new stuff that corn snakes are producing and then like your western hognose um and even some of the like rare and uncommon stuff that uh is becoming a little bit more uh common and bred a little bit more readily um they're gonna hopefully kind of rise up a little bit more in the next few years yeah, I think it's it's kind of to me it's kind of disappointing that people when they get their first pet go to buy even though ball pythons are cool. I'm sure but I mean I don't know. Corn snakes will certainly escape most enclosures yeah. and I try to how many times do I tell people and it still happens but besides that I mean they're so much easier to keep. Yeah, definitely. And like to me, I think it's it's better for the animal to be kept well. And once they're on frozen thaw, they're typically on frozen thaw, mm -hmm. and they'll eat every time. And therefore, the person's happy; they're not stressed out. And it's yeah. just, yeah, I, to me, they're like the perfect pet snake. Maybe if they didn't, if we sold them all at like a year old, maybe yeah. that, <laughs> you know, maybe <laughs> that might that might help. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like I can I can show someone a baby, and then show someone a. a a, one that's a year old and people gravitate towards the one that's older all the mm -hmm. time. Yeah. 
which is like intimidatingly small. <laughs> so what other stuff do you have any other projects? Um, no, not, I mean, it's basically just mixing different things with buff and I've started a few projects. So basically I have a few holdbacks like buffs and normals head for shatter head for lava cinder, that sort of stuff. Um, then basically kind of starting things from the bottom. But other than that, I don't really, just because I don't have a ton of space, uh, I kind of just have decided to kind of focus on like the projects that I have and not really, you know, taking, you know, expanding too much. Uh, most of what I have at this point is buff or something that's going to fit into a project. Um, and usually a lot of the stuff that I have is stuff that I've produced and raised up and just, you know, purchase something to kind of plug and play with, with the genes involved. So do you know, what do they, do they consider buff to be uh, dominant or incomplete dominant? I don't think we're really sure still. Because um, I know people like to throw dominant on corn snake genes that yes. are, you know, when most people would go straight for incomplete dominant. Yeah, I from what I gather, I think the opinion is that it is incomplete dominant. Um, but I don't think we're still entirely sure. Um, I know people have done buff to buff breedings, and I've done it myself, and I haven't seen anything like visual like you know, <laughs> pop out that's any different to indicate. So I don't know if the super buff just looks like a buff, but then you breed it to a normal and you're just going to you know get a, a crap ton of buffs or something like that um so i, I don't i don't really know i did amel buff to amel buff and it just made my life fucking hard <laughs> <laughs> there's really not much difference no know. no there is. I, I i mean from what i can tell there isn't any difference which is like kind of sad because for that goes for most of the dominant slash yeah. complete dominant they don't seem to have an obvious yeah. super form and i don't i don't know if people are going back and breeding it because i've heard people throw around super super tessera or to yeah. for for people in the chat who hate the way i say that uh, <laughs> there's like i i haven't seen any proof one way or the other like no one's proven out uh, tessera yeah. that's that was bred to a normal that produced all tesseras and yeah. if they have then i just haven't seen it i mean it's been around enough that i'm sure someone has yes I, i'm sure if if someone had done it it would already been done by now um unless someone's just keeping it a secret and doesn't want to share with everyone else which I don't know what there's to benefit. Maybe you could sell like I don't know either. <laughs> a couple more hundred and fifty dollars snake, <laughs> I guess you could sell. I don't know. But at are, are you trying to? Is that kind of a method of yours? Is to get? Um, it looks like a lot of people have put buff into like your brighter genes. But are you trying to kind of infuse it into some of the darker stuff as well? I do a lot with Anery. Uh, I think it does wonders to Anery. It basically just like infuses a crap ton of yellow into it makes it like basically extends the yellow that they usually have and are usually have and makes it a lot brighter um and 
hopefully I'll have some cinder uh, stuff here in the near future to see how that goes. Um, and I also have uh, a friend in Canada who's done stuff with charcoal and buff and produced uh, some, I think he's might have produced the charcoal buff to Sarah. We're still kind of figuring it out. Um, but he did it from a, a trio of corn snakes buff trio that I sold to him and regretted it ever since. Um, <laughs> it was, I don't know why I did it. Uh, it's a buff, they're buffs head hypo, possible head terrazzo, charcoal, something or other, and he's produced charcoal, or probably charcoal buff to Sarah's terrazzo buffs, all of this other weird stuff. Wow. And ever, when, as soon as I saw the picture, I was like, why did I do this? Why did I sell them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely happens. But yes. have you seen, because charcoal's supposed to, you know, take out your red coloration mm-hmm. and then charcoal in particular takes out, you know, there's none of that yellow. So what does buff that's supposed to enhance yellow? I mean, how does it interact with a gene like that? So when you mix it with a lot of the darker genes, it seems to basically just like really lighten up what should be a lot darker. So the like anery, it's more of a subtle gray color to it. Um, with a lot of yellow in it because it does but basically i mean for the most part buff also gets rid of a lot of red pigmentation uh unless you're you know working a, a red gene back into it um so it basically kind of even more mutes the red than just the amory would do um so basically just kind of makes it a lot lighter, even lighter than it should be. So even though you're kind of working, playing with a gene that's typically darker, it's like a lot lighter than it usually is. So we're probably getting way too deep in the weeds for the non-corn snake folks. But I'm wondering, <laughs> like, because I never thought of it the way that you said it is that because I always saw it to where you put buff in with AML and it's it's mixing that yellow with the mm-hmm. red pigment, which is making it more orange. But you think it's actually kind of reducing some of those red pigments as yeah, well so, as enhancing some of the yellows. So the pretty much the the general thought is it's hypoatheristic. So it basically mutes red. Uh, pretty much all the, the buffs that I have uh, are basically orange and brown, um, except for the red factor because obviously red factor is involved, so they still have some of the red. Uh, but yeah, they basically have no red at all. Uh, so it's, I, for the most part, think it's basically when you work it in to, you know, those darker genes that basically get rid of red, it just doubles, you know, what that other, that gene's already doing. And uh, instead of the anery gene kind of keying off of a red color. It's more keying off of the browns and the oranges. So it kind of makes it uh, a lot lighter than it normally would be. So are you getting hmm, lighter? So are you getting a more like muddy looking anery, less black or? It's kind of, a. I, I think it's a kind of a cleaner look. It It's more of like, a light gray 
Um, yeah, it's a little less black. It's more like kind of, at least with Anori, it's much more of like a light gray color, like almost like a, I guess maybe like, a, I don't know, different shades of gray that well, like kind of like a, a slate gray or something, uh, a little lighter tone to it. Cool, because I've never, um, well, I've never seen any of that stuff, so it's <laughs> good to know. And I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out what do I do with my buff my uh, buff stuff yeah. because <laughs> because I have way too many Amel Tesseras Amel Tessera red factors that may or may not have buff in them. And yeah, I even have yearlings now, and uh, two of them I'm pretty confident, and the others like uh, I don't know even at a, even at a year old. But I think that's just because of the some of the Miami infusion from. Oh yeah. Which has made my life hard, which I should have known, but and it can be a pain in the ass sometimes. So, what else do you have, uh, corn snake wise? Obviously, you got to have like shatter stuff hanging out, but do I, you breed any of that to other stuff other than buff? Uh, not really. Uh, occasionally, um, I'll have just some, especially if I want to like try and. Uh, work stuff into a project. I'll get a pair of, you know, normals head for shatter or something like that, just so I don't have to buy a bunch of shatters. I can just produce my own. Um, but for the most part, I just kind of keep to the, the buff. I do, like, the one thing I do have is I have a palmetto, and that's just because I really wanted a palmetto. Not that I really care what I breed it to or anything like that. Right. And are you, do you, how do you look at like projects when you're getting started? I, I pretty much, especially like with buff, it's kind of up in the air. I don't really know. I just kind of look at different morphs that already look appealing and kind of like I, I'm a big fan of Shatters and a big fan of Lava Cinders and big fan of Sunkiss stuff. Uh, just like looking at, you know, snakes that I already like, uh, like combos that I already like and deciding to kind of go with those and see what happens. And then I already get to kind of produce the stuff that I like as a byproduct if they don't have buff in it and get to produce uh, those combos that hopefully have buff in it and someday actually we'll figure out if it does have buff in it but <laughs> um, for the time being it's kind of like oh that one looks really weird uh, doesn't look like it should be if it was just uh, the combo without buff so I'm going to go with that it has buff in it and keep it and see what happens in a few years right and what do you do with those animals that are, say, het one million different things, but maybe a normal, or is a possible buff het for, you know, all these different things? So I will typically, um, what I've started to do more recently, um, I, if I produce some, what I think are buffs, head for, you know, all those genes, I'll probably keep uh, one or two females back, and then I'll try and find uh, 
a male kind of the same age that's from someone else that at least has a few of those genes or at least the core genes that I really want to try and uh, bring out uh, from another breeder so that I kind of don't really muddle genes too much um, and just kind of stash them away in the whole back rack until they're big enough and then kind of find some room in the adult rack and then try things out. But um, yeah, that's typically, I like I have my lava cinder project. I kept a bunch of the, the weird possible buff stuff that I produced this year is all had lava cinder. Um, so I just bought a pair of lava cinders from uh, another breeder that's local um, to hopefully just to that are also 2019. So I don't just have a, a random adult male taking up space where I can have another, you know, adult for the breeding projects that I have. Um, and kind of just have them work in later on when they're all big enough. And do you at any time say, you know, say you had 30 babies of all those hats, I mean, are you selling them as hats? Are you wholesaling? I mean, what are you doing? Um, depending on how many, like, just how many offspring I produce. I don't, I mean, I don't produce a ton compared to a lot of the other breeders. Like, usually, typically, hundreds what I max out at. Um, but uh, usually, I'll do like a, a show or do it my initial push selling on like morph market and stuff like that and once everything starts to die down i'll typically i'll reach out to uh the person that i wholesale to and i'll wholesale like 20 or something just to uh kind of clear out a little bit of space um and kind of uh, rework things reorganize and then hopefully get to do another show or two before I make another uh, kind of wholesale sale. Yeah, because I know we missed you at the Baltimore show. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping I'm doing Repticon in January. I, I think we, sure we bought that table already. So Yeah, yeah I, bought, I bought the table already too. I made sure that I got a table this time. Um, I've just waited way too long and uh i did do did the mid-atlantic reptile show the one that's in carlisle and oh no <laughs> <laughs> how was that uh, it wasn't it wasn't bad uh i always seem to get stuck next to the people that have like the 40 billion imported animals uh so everyone kind of just glosses over the corn snakes to see all like the crazy weird things that are probably going to die in like three days. Um, but I, I mean, people still bought some corn snakes. So as long as they at least make, you know, $10 profit, I'm fine with <laughs> the show's good. Get in my books. Yeah. That's the thing. We're always, um, 
you never really know with shows. The more shows we've been doing, the more it's been all over the place. And we've been trying to look for like, you know, what shows the best for it? Because obviously we're selling some pets, but we also, you know, we're also not on the cheaper side for the pets. So, um, yeah, I just didn't think that Carlisle show was was a big show. So, you know, it's I mean, it's it's a small venue. They still drew in a decent amount. But I mean, it's not anything compared to like Repticon or Hamburg or anything like that. Um, but it, I mean, it still brought in a decent amount of people. But yeah, I've I've gotten pretty particular about the shows that I do. Um, I've made the mistake of booking a show in Pittsburgh and driving all the way up there and not selling anything. Uh, so basically, you know, it was I, mean, I think it was probably like a almost a three hour drive uh. from where I was you know, living in at the time there and back. It was told like six hours plus the show time. Um, so it was definitely a rookie mistake. And uh, <laughs> Those are the ones that just like crush you. You're just yeah. like, I don't know if I ever want to do this again. Yeah. <laughs> right. That was definitely the last time I was ever doing that show again um, <laughs> or driving anywhere near Pittsburgh. I don't, I'm not really fond of Pittsburgh to begin with. So I don't know uh, why I decided to do a show out there, but I was just, Pittsburgh, Baltimore seems like that would be a rivalry. I don't know yes, why. Yes, it, it is definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, so I it's I basically do Repticon as much as possible since it's literally like fifteen minutes away from where I live right now. Uh, so it's like right up the street. It's easy. To get it's a to. good show. Yeah, it's a good show. Uh, gets a lot of people. Um, I've done Hamburg like twice. Uh, I always try and split a table with someone when I can, uh, just because it also brings in a lot of people. Uh, but that's usually the two shows. And then the Mid-Atlantic Reptile Show, I just really needed to do a show because I had a lot of snakes left. And um, it was, I mean, it's not overly expensive to do so and it's also an hour away so it's not that big of a drive um, so yeah, sometimes it. sometimes it's like these tables can be like 50 bucks or 75 bucks yeah. and it's kind of worth the the yeah. shot to see yeah, how it goes exactly because if, if you sell you know one snow corn snake you basically you know you, need to, you know what you paid for the table yeah, exactly. Um, so basically, anything after that is a little, a little, one less snake uh, in your racks, and then a little bit of extra money for whatever you might want to purchase or <laughs> save it or something. <laughs> yeah, dinner. Yeah, you don't have to starve yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, so, Mike, uh, to go back a little bit, we were talking about Red Factor, you know, buff, you know, some of those things that are pretty nuanced in how they're expressed. So Mike was saying, you know, I always like to hear what experienced breeders like to or think of Red Factor, Strawberry, Red Coat, all that stuff that seems pretty much different, the same, all different types of these. I've heard people call them enhancer genes. I mean, 
So it, I am, I don't really like the, the Red Factor buff is one of the first times I've really ever done anything or had an animal with Red Factor. Um, to me, just like looking at it and comparing it to other buffs, I think it's, it enhances. I mean, it definitely enhances the color. It's a lot brighter orange. Um, and it's still got that, you know, nice red color to it uh, that a lot of people like. Um, so to me, that's that's probably my opinion on it. It's, it's an enhancer gene. Um, I don't really, I've never really worked with strawberry. And to me, I always thought red coat and red factor were synonymous. So I don't um, yeah, from, really, really from what I've yeah. from what I've heard, red coat's supposed to be like a darkening gene. So say yeah. so say red factor is an anery, then you're gonna get that like pink tone to it. Gotcha, gotcha. And if red coat's an anery, you're gonna get a very dark animal. Darker, okay. But that's I feel that that is largely theoretical because I've never yeah. seen uh, yeah. I haven't seen many red coats alone. I don't, or, yeah, I don't, I don't. Like, I've and that's supposed seen, to like, be recessive. Yeah, and I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably something to ask, like Don or I don't know Walter or something that has been doing stuff with corn things for as long as I've been alive. <laughs> Yeah, and then it's like, where is where's the line with polygenics? So like, yeah. we have things, we have things like mask, which oh, I hate, I can't. <laughs> so we have, so we we have animals that are showing some degree of, I mean, the same thing that say animals with keys lineage have. Yeah. Um, but also, and I mean, I've done this myself, is that it is passing out through generation, but what. What amount of that, I don't know, is that influence? But I've seen, like, I've done mass to mask or mass to something that doesn't have mask, and I've gotten a sliding scale of expression. Mm -hmm. So I've gotten what some people would call a super mask, in quotations for yeah. those who aren't watching, <laughs> or, or, you know, a regular mask, or a normal who has all of its head pattern and you'll see that, you know, they'll have a varying degree of slits down the belly as far as uh, no pattern mm -hmm. there, right? It's going to be those checkers are bifurcated. They're kind of, there's whiteness in between there. There's just a blank slate a little bit in between. And then I see some like red and stuff coming on the belly. Mm -hmm. But but ultimately, it seems like much more of a sliding scale rather than say, oh, yeah, that's a mask and then that's a yeah. super mask. It's so much more fuzzy than that at least i have seen and i feel like kind of a little everything is like that which is kind of a little frustrating yeah it can be yeah and how many people are willing to talk on podcasts and stuff for two hours about this stuff i don't know <laughs> but what are you as far as because obviously now you have a red factor buff mm -hmm. which is amazing yeah. just a crazy amazing animal but it's like who would have ever thought that that worked out like that. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, when I see half the stuff that I end up producing, I'm like, I, I wasn't really expecting it to be like this. So, anything besides the stuff that I already knew, like the oranges and hypo buff, it, everything's kind of 
the surprise and how it turns out. Um, but the Red Factor buff is definitely a, uh, a big surprise, especially since it retains so much of that red color to it. And it's pretty, it's a lot brighter than uh, some of the duller oranges that you get with normal buffs. And what, or what animals are you pairing up this this coming um, So it's a Red Factor buff hit uh, fire, and I have a Hypo Fire Stripe female that is about two and a half years old. Um, so once she gets a little bit bigger, he's going to be going with her. And that's, nice. pretty, that's pretty much all I got paired, picked out for him at the moment. Yeah. Well, that's you're ahead of me. <laughs> I'm just trying to get ready. I'm just trying to get ready for brumation, which I'm supposed yeah. to do like tomorrow. So what do you uh when do you typically brumate your animals? So I've already started. Um I typically start in November and start warming them up in end of February, beginning of March. Um and I don't do anything super fancy or anything like that. I just basically lower their heat until it gets to the room temperature and then cut it off and then kind of just let whatever the room gets to be with, you know, just the normal fluctuations. Um, usually nothing lower than like 65 degrees um, for that amount of time period and being off food seems to, at least for me, do the trick. I know a lot of people put them in a closet and put a fan on them and, you know, drop them down into the fifties, which I mean, is also perfectly fine because they get lower than that in the wild and seem to do fine too. Um, but it's just with the kind of the setup that I have, that seems to be the best. Cause I also in this room have, you know, things native to South America and mm. uh, Asia that, I don't want them to get that cold, so. Right. So at, at a certain point, you're kind of, uh, you're finding a happy medium that kind yeah. of works for everyone. Yeah, exactly. And do you think that maybe, I mean, if we didn't brumate the animals, I think we could probably breed corn snakes, right? You think? Yeah. I mean, I've heard of people having success without brumating, so I don't think it's an issue, and I don't think it's overly important. I mean, it seems to have, a little bit of a better effect, at least in my opinion, but they seems to still breed fine without brumating from what I hear. Um, so I mean, it's other than it's just simulating a natural behavior that they would experience in the wild. Um, the snakes in captivity probably would be fine. I think it's also nice for, it. for us not to worry about our That's, snakes for yeah, a few months. Yeah. yeah. It, it saves a little bit on the uh, feeding bill, not having to feed adults for a few months. Right. Yeah. And, and that is always such a, it's a nice time. I love this time of year when, well, not yet for me, but for you, but when, when those animals go down in brumation and then I kind of start intellectualizing more of my, mm -hmm. my collection than actually having to work on them. So yeah, therefore yeah. I'm able like I like to go through the animals that I've held back because I don't I don't brumate my grow outs. I don't know if you yeah, do. I don't I don't either. So like I work with them so much that I'm like I can plan for the future a lot more 
because those other animals aren't, you know, taking up a lot mm-hmm. of my time. Yeah. I usually, with any of my adults, they're kind of typically just in random order a lot of times, but usually uh, right before cremation, I kind of kind of slide them around and kind of organize them a little bit more so that, you know, the male is right above the females that he's going to go with. So it's not as much, you know, trying to figure out who goes where. It's basically just like a male goes down one tub and then down another tub and then goes back in this tub and they're all kind of right there. And that usually is my time to kind of plan and figure out exactly uh, who's going to go with who next year and what is your typical feeding schedule and how do you bring them up out of uh, brumation um so typically i um i'm a little just based on you know being a zookeeper and doing it at work i do it a little slower than probably some people do i usually when i start to raise up temperatures i basically bring it up few degrees every day or every other day um, until they're at 88 degrees for their hot spot or the warm side. Uh, and at that point, I start feeding them. Typically, when they're right out of brumation, I give the females like probably uh, small, like a small adult mouse every five days for you know the first couple couple weeks and then once they start to shed and you know go through all the normal processes uh is when i start to kind of get them on adult mice again and get them ready you know kind of sized up for breeding season right and then when do you start or well, I guess for it's hard for corns because I want to yeah. go through all the breeding questions and they're all like so they're so step by step yeah. as far as how to breed them. And like they give you all the signs. So clearly you're not going to start pairing them before they've shed out of rumination yeah. or anything yeah, like exactly. that. But do you yeah. but do you give them a go that that first shed that that female has? Do you start introducing? Um, Typically, I'll kind of test it out i'll once they go through that first shed and as long as they've uh, been eating normally uh i'll throw a male in there and kind of just see how they kind of interact and whether or not he's really showing interest in her or she's you know just trying to you know get away and doesn't want anything to do with them usually to me that's just you know they're uh, a little a little too early uh, and then I'll just kind of pull the mail out and give them a, a few more days or a week um, and then try it again. And then typically once I notice males, you know, um, showing signs of, you know, wanting to breed and females not really fleeing as much. Uh, and that's usually typically the time to really ramp up breeding and really start to get males introduced to females and do you do you introduce in separate containers do you put male with female vice versa any of that i i put i put the male in with the females um and i just use the the tubs that they're in um i don't really worry about trying to put them in something uh, separate um 
usually, I mean, I, I just don't have a, like a, a ton of extra stuff. Um, I do, and it sucks. Of... I always have empty tubs <laughs> stacked up like all over the place. So yeah, yeah I, I don't blame you. Yeah, so I just basically let them breed in what they have, and that seems to be working fine. Um, is that like an overnight thing? You keep them in overnight, or are you just I, wash them for? A I typically will leave them in overnight if I see if, if I don't see any signs. I mean, I'll check on them every once in a while, um, and if I don't really see anything throughout the day, I'll still leave them in overnight. But then the next day, I'll kind of pull them out and let the male take a day or two, and then try them with another female. Um, but if I do see like active breeding, I'll usually t- typically live, leave them in for a couple days um, just to make sure that you know everything works out like it should. Hopefully, yeah. Now, I mean, I find that when when I put them together, I mean, if they don't kind of breed in the first few hours, it seems like they aren't very willing to breed or just the female isn't receptive. Yeah. I I do um I do see that like I usually typically get females that start to really think like when the male first goes in they're really just like start to like flee and they're kind of like you know just going throughout the entire tub just to like really not try and get away from the male but usually after a few males or a few hours or so, she usually just settles down, and that's usually uh, when they actually uh, copulate and they start to breathe. Um, so I like to give them extra time just to kind of, because typically when you first put the male in, she's just like, you know, what the hell is going on? Why is there another snake in here? Um, and usually she realizes, you know, they realize that. Oh, it's not like something that's going to eat me or whatever. He's just, you know, got to, you know, breed and then he'll be gone kind of a deal. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of terrible to say, but at least like the first copulation is a little rapey. It's always like a little little forceful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like that, and then it seems like some some of the the older females are like just hanging out, and then they just yeah. let them go for it. But it's yeah, you see, it like most of the like the older female breeders that I have, it's kind of just like oh, it's happening again, kind of a deal. They're <laughs> not they're not trying to get away as much. Uh, but yeah, the, a lot of like the first time breeders, they're usually just like, what the hell is going on, and why is there another snake in here? Yeah. Have you have you had males bite females or anything like that? I I I did for the first time see uh my snow muff bobby. Snow buff motley. <laughs> That's a hard one. <laughs> uh male bite female um mid copulation. That was the first time that I've ever seen it. But he's also kind of a nippy corn snake, so hmm. it didn't shock me that he actually did it. Yeah, I think that's always fun as far as, uh, I don't know, seeing the different behaviors even between between individuals, but also in between I've had whole clutches that are like nippy little crazy oh, guys. Yeah, definitely. 
And I've had some that are like chill and they all kind of seem to be going with the flow. And it's like uh, just a, the sliding spectrum. And it seems like I don't know how that's passed on or not passed on, but it's interesting. I don't I don't really know, you know how that's affected, but I have noticed that blood reds, at least in my opinion, usually produce some feisty juveniles. Like they always seem to, whether or not they have like, are visually blood red, just offspring of blood red individuals seem to really have you know, produce nippy babies. And I can't, my stuff, I it doesn't seem that they're get to feeding very easily. Yeah, um, I, I feel like the ones that are overly defensive usually are the ones that take the longest to get started. I think it's it's unlike in ball pythons when you have like a nippy baby that's an animal yeah. that eats well typically. I feel like in corn snakes when someone's too overworked, they're, they they get over the fact that they're having a meal and then they don't go for yeah, it. Exactly, yeah. I, I feel like they're just like whatever's in front of me wants to eat me and I don't care if it smells like food. It's not food and I just need it to go away. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so between all the babies that you have i mean getting them started everything like that um what's your success off the bat do you try to go straight for frozen thawed or do you start I, live? I, I only do frozen thawed um so yeah right off the bat it's just pinkies and usually i give them like three feedings and once they, if they haven't fed at least once in those three feedings, it's usually when I try, you know, boiling or, you know, washing with Dawn or something along those lines to try and uh, get them started. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't typically try and feed anything live or try and avoid it as much as possible. Yeah. Now, is that uh, you mentioned boiling? So that's kind of your your first step. Yeah, that's I I actually started kind of moving with doing dawning first since I've had had so much success with it in the past couple of years. Uh, but usually now, but in the past, boiling was usually my uh, first step. Um, but now it's probably more second or third step. So do you have, uh, if you don't mind going through kind of all your different methods or the steps you have yeah. to, to get baby started? Um, so it's usually, um, it's basically, you know, offering them food. If they don't eat, uh, tease feeding is usually one of the, you know, next steps. Um, can Although, you explain a little bit? Because like uh, I haven't had much success with that kind of like how we were talking about before. Yeah. Once they get once they get a little bit scared, they're like yeah. they're they, totally out. It's it seems to work with some more than others, um, but it's just it's usually typically like if they don't eat the first time, the second time, I might try tease feeding depending on it's more of kind of just a judgment thing based on personality of a snake like like you were saying like a snake that gets overworked i'm not going to do that with them because they're not going to eat and if i keep bashing them in that you know popping them on the head with a pinky 
it's just going to piss them off even more and they're probably not even going to eat if I just stick the pinky in the tub. Um, so it's, it's more or less, you know, a judgment call on my part. Um, if I notice like a snake is calm, but it, it's like really tongue flicking and seems that there seems to be interest, but it just doesn't want to take the next step of actually taking the pinky from me. I'll try tease feeding just to kind of get it going a little bit. You know, it's getting more, you know, of the scent of the pinky instead of me just dangling it in front of their face. Um, so I would probably do it more along those lines. Um, but if I'm not going to tease feed, I'll try donning them, which is super easy. You just basically wash the pinky off with dawn and throw it. I just, I don't even, I just, after I'm done washing them off, I just throw it in the tub, you know, close it up and don't even bother, you know, checking on them until the next day to basically leave them alone. And then if that doesn't work at least twice, I'll boil which is basically just throwing them in boiling water and uh, either they will start to float or start to sink. And that's usually when I pull them out and they're usually nice and warm and throw them in there. After you let it, I usually let, like to let them cool off a little bit because I'm sure just like, you know, we would, it probably wouldn't be beneficial for the little tiny snakes to be eating a boiling hot pinky uh, right out of the water. Um, so yeah, same, same ideas. I just throw it in the tub and just basically shut the tub and, you know, leave them alone for 24 hours and hopes that they, uh, eat the pinkies. Yeah. And I mean, I've found at least personally between the boiling and just frozen thawed, I mean, that's probably like at least 95% of the baby yeah. can be good to go off that. Yeah. Yeah, typically I don't have to go much further than boiling. Uh, I've had had a couple here and there that, you know, I'll have to like try braining a pinky or sometimes just feeding a pinky head or mice tails, you know, adult mice tails, stuff like that to finally get things going. But that's usually like maybe one a year or something like that. Yeah. And I think that's kind of, uh, people aren't used to any of those methods. They're yeah. pretty, they're pretty uniquely corn snake. Yes. Uh, I, I haven't, uh, I don't know many other people that, that use, especially, I mean, boiling, I just learned of a couple, a couple years ago and that was like a game changer I mean, <laughs> as well as I think people probably think it's absolutely crazy that you'd wash off. Yeah. With dog, just so. I had to, I had to like, wait till I had an apartment of my own and my own like you know pots and pans to actually do boiling because I know my mom would probably have killed me if I was boiling pinkies and for pots that she was going to use to like make pasta the next day or something like that she probably even even cleaning it out she probably would have been you know <laughs> kicked me out of the house or something well if, for people who listen to the podcast know that Melissa hates me and for using the pots <laughs> really like yeah yeah it it is nasty i gotta admit but we do have we do have designated kitchenware that is yeah. where it's just sometimes it gets mixed up with the other stuff right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's always um i mean core snakes 
are easy to get started, but you always have a few stubborn ones. Yeah. I don't know if there's any snakes to where, I mean, everything's going to eat right off the bat. But uh, I mean, there probably isn't. There's probably always, especially a lot of those snakes that, you know, we have in captivity that we hatch out that don't eat right away probably are just those ones in the clutch that are would typically in the wild not survive but just so happens that they're hatched out in captivity where we can do you know all these different techniques to you know get them started and get them eating on their own they just probably the the part of the clutch that you know wasn't probably typically meant to um do as well as the rest which is perfectly natural normal thing because otherwise corn snake populations and every other snake population would be astronomical and you know we can deal with it in captivity because we you know only pair up as many snakes as we can handle and we can handle all the offspring and we can you know we're here to put the time in to you know get them going rather than it's just up to them and if they don't eat they don't eat and whatever happens happens and that kind of presents us with two different trains of thought like you kind of you kind of touched on the fact that there are people who are the whole if they don't eat they're not meant to survive people because those are the animals that wouldn't survive in the wild which Mm -hmm. is a fair point and then there's the people we have them in captivity so i'm gonna try my hardest to get going so kind of uh are you one way or the other are you somewhere in between I'm, I'm, okay. i think i'm somewhere in between um i i think especially this comes back to like me doing you know reptile keeping as a profession uh that you know i'm keeping them in captivity i'm deciding to hatch them out it's on me to you know make sure that they survive and thrive you know, try everything that I know and, you know, can try to get them going. Now, if I try everything that I can and they don't eat and they, you know, happen to die, which does happen from time to time, I did everything I could. They probably just weren't meant to, you know, survive. And that just, that just happens sometimes. Um, but again, I mean, I'll, I'll try whatever I can um, to get them going and keep them, you know, living and make them thrive. Yeah. And I think that's something to where um, it's usually typically around this time of year, at least for me, where it's like you start to, even those animals, like I have a few animals that I've been assist feeding for like, Dude, it's November. I'm yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I imagine how long I've been assist feeding them. I haven't hatched a snake since the beginning of August. Yeah. Um. So it's like this is the time where things are like weathering away, unfortunately, and yeah. like things are just. I don't know, man. It's sad, but you try to you try to do your best, and yeah. um, you know, we always have a few pairs of corn snakes, but they're or king snakes. Sorry. Um, yeah, at, we can, you know, at least reuse those animals. Yeah. Cause I mean, there is a, um, a certain time where I find that, you know, this animal's just kind of moving slower. 
Um, you'll see sometimes a baby that's really weak will kind of like, it's almost like they're dragging around like the back part of their body, like their tail and the back half of their body. Sometimes they're just laying kind of weak, like they're not, you know, on their belly coiled up under the heat or under the hide. They are like kind of strewn out and kind of, and then I'm like, okay, yeah, that animal, unfortunately, I don't think is going to recover. But then I've had animals that have come from like the brink of absolutely to become perfectly feeding, you know, perfect animals. So it's kind of weird like that. Yeah. I have a, one of my uh, holdbacks that's now a breeder was basically that situation where it didn't eat for probably like a month. And then I don't know what happened. All of a sudden it just like, you know, kicked in and it just started eating. And now it's, now it's breeding. And luckily none of his offspring have uh, inherited that trait so far. So, um, Hopefully that still continues at least for the the clutches that he produces. Yeah. Yeah. And I've even, you know, now I'm trying to think what animals feed well. So um, can I selectively breed for feeding, which is also another thing, which sucks because the the best looking babies never feed. (laughs) I I have run into that a couple (laughs) of times. And that's why I say, like, it's not only disappointing that that these animals are are like are withering away at this point of the season. It's also the fact that there's some really beautiful, amazing animals, and you know, you you don't get to choose what doesn't eat. Yeah, and like your favorite snake may have a kink. Yeah, or you know, like I don't know. I've just come across these kind of unfortunate coincidences, but. I've run into a few instances where I've been breeding off a combo for buff that I'm like, it's a three or four gene combo. And of course I hit that combo and it never eats, never ate no matter what. And of course there goes that, you know, hard work of, you know, three or four years raising up snakes just to get to that point and then you hit what you want and you're, you're shooting for and then it just doesn't work out because the snake does, doesn't want to eat. I think that's that's worse than not producing it. Yeah, I would rather just I would almost rather just that, that pair just not lay eggs that year than <laughs> hit, hit that big combination and have it you know not work out and just you just like almost kind of decimates your attitude and your, your disposition for that. I mean, it doesn't last forever because you have, you know, 90 other snakes that you need to take care of. But for that, at least for that moment, you're just like, why, why did it have to be this one? Yeah. And I mean, what, what keeps you going during moments like that? Well, I, I mean, I, I think, at least for me, um, I think what helps is being, you know, a zookeeper and having, I mean, I take care of numerous animals at my job, and it's an unfortunate part of, you know, working with animals, whether it be breeding corn snakes in your your apartment or, you know, working at a zoo, is that, you know animals die and 
mean, it's going to happen, but it could be, you know, your favorite corn snake or and just, uh, you know, your pet or in my case, you know, an otter that you really work with closely or something like that. Um, it's going to happen. And it's, you know, you just have to realize that it's a part of, you know, you know, doing this, you have, you know, a whole host of other animals that you need to take care of. Yes, it sucks. Um, and it's going to suck probably for the next couple of days, if not longer. But you just have to concentrate on the animals that are still here. Uh, and uh, kind of, I typically just kind of focus on them uh, and kind of distract myself from, especially at work, kind of distract myself from what just happened and kind of focus in on, you know, the animals that still are here that are that rely on me to, you know, make sure that they're fed and, you know, everything, um, just to kind of keep myself from thinking about it too much. And I'm sure that that's much more of a, a muscle you need to flex at work more so yeah. than at home, as far as like, not only do you have to move on after a day where, you know, maybe something that is more, how dare I say endearing than a snake or something like that, you know, something maybe a little bit more interactive um, passes away, but you also are probably working with animals of higher consequence and you need to keep yeah. kind of your mind about you while you're, you're kind of grieving through that. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like sometimes it can be, uh, especially if you work with the animal every day, you do a lot of, you know training and stuff like that with them where you're basically have you know very good relationship with that animal it, it, it can be tough um, but you then you have you know you know the other you know otters the other snakes other frogs whatever they still are relying on you um, so you have to just basically I mean, just focus on that and, you know, do your job and, you know, can't let it kind of distract you from that. Because if you get distracted, that's when uh, either you're going to get hurt, an animal's going to get hurt, and then there's the potential that you lose another animal just because you were distracted uh, from actually doing your job. Right. So are you not, yeah, you're not herps uh, specific at work? So. so I'm predominantly herps. Uh, most of what I take care of is native to Maryland. Um, so it's mostly native herps, uh, a few birds. We have an aviary with native birds. And then we also have otters, bobcats, and bats. Um, bats aren't technically native to Maryland, but they're basically the same color size as native Maryland bats. So uh, they kind of use them as an analog um, and they're also fruit eating bats. So they're a lot easier to take care of than all the bats in Maryland because they all are insectivores. Um, and then we also take care of a few things that aren't native. Uh, Slumbersnout crocodiles and our, one of our big uh, projects is working with pan mangling frogs. 
Awesome. And uh, what frogs were those? Sorry. Panamanian, Panamanian golden frogs. Oh, so those are those uh, that golden, you know, I don't know if it's a dart frog, but it's basically usually seen with dart frogs, but that are functionally extinct in the wild. Yes. So they're, um, they're part of the genus Adelopus. So they're based, they're actually a toad, even though they're called frogs. Um, but they are considered, they're still listed by the IUCN as critically endangered, although it's thought that they're extinct in the wild. Uh, at this point, no one's seen them since the early 2000s um, in the wild. Um, so the assumption now is that there are no longer any individuals, although they don't like to really, like as far as like IUCN and stuff like that that does all those things, they don't like to assume unless they're Hundred, you know, they're entirely sure that that there's a good chance that this species doesn't exist anymore. Uh, seeing as that they are native to Panama and you know the rainforests, uh, especially like the montane rainforest, it's still a pretty expansive area, so it's not the easiest to really go through every inch of the area and really check. So there could still be one or a few in the wild, and in that case, they'd probably be functionally extinct. Um, but for the time being, we call them critically endangered. And are you actively trying to breed species like these? Yeah, so with Panamanian golden frogs, we have the largest uh, colony of, we call them PGFs, uh, in the United States. Um, and we also have the most success breeding them. Um, so we typically get a lot. Of, so they're part of an SSP uh, species survival plan. And uh, our collect, herb collection manager is actually the stud bookkeeper for the SSP. Um, and uh, we actually get a fair amount of the recommended breeders. Like we have a fair amount of them. And we also get uh, a decent amount from other uh, institutions that aren't necessarily set up uh for breeding um so we usually bring them in and do all the breeding in-house um and kind of just go from there and then uh we'll either keep offspring and raise them up here or at the zoo and then uh or we'll send uh individuals out to other zoos and other institutes that are either one um them for just exhibit stuff or want to do breeding themselves or uh, we do uh, from here and there breed offspring uh, for for them to be able to do research on the species as well. So are most of the animals, are they breeding on display or do you guys have them set so, up? Uh, so behind the scenes? we all our breeding happens behind the scenes. Uh, uh, we have uh, our main majority of our collection or PGFs wise uh, is split up uh, into two parts of the hospital, the animal hospital. Um, and one of the rooms where there aren't as many of the frogs, but there's a bunch of breeder setups and that's where we do all our breeding. Um, and we also have like 20 or so individuals that we keep on exhibit that we bred specifically to be exhibit animals, so they're not 
as genetically important to the SSP, um, but we just bred them to for numbers so we could have someone exhibit them on display so people can see them. So are there are there distinct bloodlines to where you know the most genetically diverse ones are the ones that you're protecting and then yeah so all the the recommended breeders basically uh, they go through the entire stud book and they run uh, individuals through uh, genetic software we, there's a, a like a geneticist that works on the SSP and basically does all that and. Um, they go through and figure out uh, which individuals need to breed with which individuals because their genes aren't uh, mixed together or anything like that, or they're not as well represented within the population already to hopefully make offspring that are uh, and keep uh, that are diverse and also keep the population very diverse. And are there any hopes in, you know, re-releasing these animals back into the wild? There are some slight hopes. Uh, we get to, our, our collection manager and our head vet uh, have been going to Panama for uh, quite a few years now. So I help, there's a, a, a group down there um, called EVAC. It's the LVIA uh, Amphibian Conservation Center. Um, and they have been working with uh, not only PGS, but a, a bunch of other amphibian species uh, down in Panama. So they are like kind of our partner on the project and the hopes at some point um, to send uh, offspring from the ones that we have in captivity down there for them to breed. Uh, and then release. are they keeping and breeding as well in that facility? Yeah, they do. They do have some. Yeah. Uh, they at this point actually have more than we do, uh, but for a long time we actually had more than there were in Panama. But luckily, they've gone to the point where they've gotten uh, breeding down that they can um, have as many frog or more frogs than we do, which is kind of where we need most of the frogs to be. Um, the only the issue right now uh, with Panama is that their government is uh, a trash fire and um, they uh, they're not great with uh, conservation wise um, they sell a lot of uh, land to farmers uh, which basically destroy any potential habitat um, Right now, a lot of the potential sites that they've kind of narrowed down are on farmland, and you basically have to beg or pay the farmers uh, to let you use their land for reintroductions, and there's no guarantee that they're going to keep the land how it is because it's their land. Uh, they can do whatever they want. Um, so even if you introduce reintroduce frog on that property, who knows how you know well things would go they could plow that you know section of land two months later and kill every single frog that you put out there and was the original uh, decimation of the population was that from chytrid fungus or was it something so else? it originally was like habitat 
habitat degradation and habitat loss. Uh, but then Kitcher came in and basically sped their decline up exponentially um, to the point of what their population is now. Um, so basically, Kitcher was basically the main uh, main player in their decline, and um, but to begin with, it was mainly habitat loss with like just like everything else do you know if kittreds uh if it has been found in like captive populations oh yeah it, it has uh kittreds pretty much everywhere at this point except for antarctica and the arctic um and is it amphibian specific yes uh so it's even gotten to the point where it's frog and salamander specific so there's bd which is the frog version of chytrid, and there's B. sal, which is the salamander form, uh, and Newton salamander form. Um, so it's gotten to the point where it's even split off as far as amphibians go and only affects certain amphibians. But there's def- there's basically different different strains that affect different animals? Yeah, so basically it just evolved to be species-specific, well, I guess family-specific or whatever you want to say it is, um, to the point where it it only affects uh, frogs and toads, or it only affects salamanders and newts and and females and all those sorts of things. And it's essentially, like, all over the world. (laughs) Yes, pretty much at this point. It's pretty much everywhere. Wow. So, what the hell do you do? Um, there, they don't really know how to get rid of it in the wild at this point. Um, Is it something that they never observed before and popped up? So it, it did. It kind of just popped up out of nowhere, kind of a deal. Uh, they did see it, but they didn't really, uh realize whatever was causing issues was chytrid because it presents a lot of times like other um, infectious diseases like uh, red leg disease and things that are caused by bacteria. Um, So um, what they saw as red leg disease or some other like pseudomonas infection, something like that could have been chytrid and um, basically well, they're not entirely. They're the main theory of how chytrid got to where it was is that it originated in Africa on clawed frogs, and clawed frogs were used, you know, in, or still are used a lot in research. Um, so basically, that's how it got everywhere is because it got shipped to all these places to to do research. On and people were touching, obviously touching these frogs and going, you know, out and you know, would go for a hike and go touch something. And now Kitchard's in that area. And all it, I mean, all it takes is the right environment for it to really do its stuff. I'm sad that I forget the whole story, but someone came on and was still telling us about the uh, the claw frogs and something about uh, 
using them as like birth control or something or a... so they were used for uh as pregnancy tests yes uh yeah so they basically would uh they're basically woman... the stick that you pee on but it's yeah. a frog yeah and they would if the woman was pregnant they would lay eggs that's so weird yeah yeah that was that so basically was the... like a pregnant woman's pee can make this yep. animal reproduce yeah the, the hormones that are present make the the female frogs produce in ladies wow <laughs> so and uh a random question and i guess and i guess that's been not just for that reason but they must be used for other reasons what clog frogs yeah like in research and whatnot like I, how I do mean, you know I'm exactly not, i'm not sure exactly what they they're used research wise um i would assume that they're used so widely in research because they're so different than a lot of other amphibian like frogs in general and they're relatively easy to kind of keep uh they're kind of just like keeping fish that you use for research or anything like that and you can keep a lot of them in a small space because you just need a bunch of aquariums or whatever and you can rig something up to do like water changes efficiently that you can you know kind of keep them research without you know ex- making your work that much you know more taxing on yourself and is that that's the same animal that you may see at the aquarium stores that like come in different colors yeah. and they kind of yeah. just sit there flat like they're not even yeah. alive mm-hmm. yep and then they'll occasionally just start swimming somewhere and then fall right yeah <laughs> just usually, like randomly yeah usually usually the ones at the aquarium stores are like the dwarf clog frogs that usually stay that size, but they are. Um, you don't really, I don't really see like the African clog, like the bear clog frogs that much anymore in like the pet trade or anything like that. Um, but it's usually, yeah, usually you see like the dwarf clog frogs. Mm-hmm. And uh, the kind of a random question from from Ryan, but I guess this kind of goes for any reptile or amphibian or any animal that can be parthenogenic is say, you know, so if the mother has a virgin birth, how do they handle that as far as like the stud book goes and everything like that? Like since it's the same gene pool, since the the female basically reproduced itself, are they seen genetically, you know, in superiors? I've never run into that instance with, uh, a species that's SSP, uh, so I'm not sure what they would do. I'm assuming since the genes are relatively like they should be the same, uh, that they would consider it, you know, the same as the female and whatever you know genes that she like whatever uh, frogs that she wouldn't breed with, they wouldn't attempt to breed. We also, I don't, I'm not sure if parthenogenic offspring would be uh, produced viable offspring. I don't know if they're sterile or um, anything like that. Uh, we have, we actually at the zoo had a, a water snake produce parthenogenic offspring. Um, she did it three years in a row. Uh, wow. 
but this is the first time or we've had usually their her offspring died within a, like a year uh but this the we've had the two and the three for about three years now two three years um so they're both and they're all they actually end up being all male at least with snakes um so we're i don't know if anyone's done any research on the viability of you know you know snakes or anything like that and i've, I've never even heard that the the offspring at least in your case they've been less hardy and less you know mm-hmm. able to thrive yeah Tim, i i don't know if it's just a thing with the water snakes that they are not uh i i mean i've heard uh other species um having parthenogenic offspring but i've never actually heard anything other you know than than them announcing the snakes or whatever it was were born. Um, I didn't know, like, haven't been any updates of if anything's still alive or anything. So, as far as I know, that could be an issue with Parthenia giant offspring is that they just typically don't thrive. I'm I, not sure. Uh, I mean, certainly in my case, my experience is they typically don't thrive unless. I don't know what's different about the three that we have currently that they're doing better. I don't know if it's because they were better feeders when they were born or it was the third go around. So it was, you know, they were that much, you know, hardier or something, but it's parthenogenesis in species where it's not a normal thing is still a pretty uh, under researched topic yeah i mean what a weird phenomenon just to begin with yeah especially i mean there are those lizard species where the entire population is only female where that's a normal thing uh but it's certainly really weird when a species that's not supposed to do it does it yeah, it's like we could almost make up something to where either reptiles are evolving uh, to become parthenogenic uh, in the way that they don't have to reproduce as far as there's there's certain, you know, lizard species or gecko species, like mm-hmm. you said, that, you know, they only reproduce that way. And I don't know many other animals that do that that aren't reptiles. Yeah, I don't think i think I'm sure it could happen in humans like once in a while. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it would, it would work. With. What up, Christians? Let's figure this out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, I only know I only like no snake stuff, but yeah. it's interesting. So I don't know if uh, or what you work with. Outside of there, are there things that aren't reptile related that uh, that you work with, or what's some of your favorite non reptiles that, that you work with? So non reptile wise, uh, I do like working with bats. The bats, uh, just because they're uh, you know seen as one of those creepy crawly animals. Everyone seems to be afraid of them, and even though they're six inches long and it like weigh like 
five ounces or something like that, where they wouldn't even hurt you if they ran into you. Um, and uh, and I, you know, I like working with the otters and bobcats as well. Both both species have so much personality, and uh, they're you know always like always on the go, always trying to figure things out. The otters are uh, you know just like any other weasel or mustelid, or you know all over the place, swimming around, very active. Um, so it always is enjoying like seeing them interacting with like enrichment and stuff like that, but also um, just kind of seeing them act as they would naturally um, in kept uh, in the zoo setting always is kind of a, a, a perk to to working with them. Yeah, I think that's an animal that has way too many like human characteristics for us not to be drawn to as far as like how playful they seem and how they use their hands and stuff like that. I, even though they're entirely like, they seem really playful. I'm still not going to put my hand finger <laughs> or anything anywhere near an otter or bobcat for that matter. Um, that's too easy of a way to lose a finger or any other digit. Um, and I, I like where my fingers are. <laughs> Is there a certain amount of like allotted space that you have to give all of so, these animals? Yeah. So we work what's called protected contact. Um, so there's always a barrier between us and the animals whenever we're around them. Um, so we, Although, I mean, it is kind of a mesh, like, framing and caging. Uh, so there is, I mean, you could stick a finger through a hole, but we try and we don't do that uh, just because of the risk of our, you know, Bobcat seems like, at least with me, seems like he's, uh, acts like he's a, like a kitten. Uh, but if I were to try and put my hand near him, he would try and bite my fingers off. <laughs> he like play. He's like very, you know, rubs his head against the mesh, like trying to get my attention. And then as soon as you like move, he's like on the ready to just like swipe at your hand or bite a finger or something. Not that it would. He would ever get the chance. But if it so happened, he would happily uh, at least scratch me up pretty good yeah sounds like he's still a cat he Damn. i mean they're they are still very cat-like but he'll break out of that that mold very soon and be a, a wild yeah. cat yeah i mean it seems like uh i don't even trust house cats let's be honest <laughs> i don't trust them either they're, they're sketchy, so I imagine a bobcat's only worse. But how do you go? Uh, just because I'm so curious, how do you go hands on with a bat, or how do you even do like health checks? Um, so we're pretty hands off with bats unless they're showing any signs of uh, illness or anything like that. Uh, our colony happens to be 
uh, an older colony. Uh, they typically live to about 12 years in captivity, and most of the bats that we have are between 8 and 10 years, um, so they're pretty old. Uh, so if we ever see any bats having trouble flying, anything like that, it's usually we net them uh, and then you know, grab them out of the net and hold them. And usually we're wearing uh, gloves of some sort because they do have very tiny, sharp teeth. Um, and they do, as soon as you get hands on them, like to uh, bite you, uh, hopefully get you to let go. Um, usually if they don't try and bite you as soon as you get hands on them, that's typically another sign that things aren't going well for them. Um, but usually that's uh, pretty much all you have to do, especially with a smaller bet. And are the typical kind of wives' tales true about being bit by a bat? You're going to get rabies or something like that? So in captivity, that's not something you usually have to worry about. A lot of the animals that are rabies vectors are vaccinated for rabies. Um, I think the bats are vaccinated for rabies. Um, if they're not, they're also kept securely in a enclosure uh, to where nothing can get in except for a snake every once in a while, but um, nothing's going to get in there that's going to potentially give them rabies. Uh, now, we do end up finding wild bats every once in a while on grounds, um, and we treat every bat like that um, that we find to be rabid. Uh, just because they have a high likelihood of transmitting rabies and having rabies. Um, but we're also, a lot of the keepers that work with high-risk uh, rabies vectors are rabies vaccinated themselves. So I'm rabies vaccinated, so it it doesn't fully protect you um, from rabies, but it uh, helps, uh, certainly helps uh keeping you from developing rabies after you've been bitten by a rabbit animal. Um, Is there some type of like booster protocol, say if you were bit that, you know, they could help you out with? So um, typically if you're vaccinated, um, like through work, we do a annual, um, it's called employee health day where we um, get blood drawn and they check your check your rabies titer so basically check to see if you have enough antibodies uh, in your blood to uh, do its job um, and if your uh, antibody count is too low then they'll give you a booster um, but the, the whole goal of getting vaccinated is if you are bitten by uh, a rabid animal or a potentially rabid animal um, and you don't have the vac you don't get vaccinated, you basically have to go to the hospital and get four shots, gravy shots. Um, but if you're vaccinated, it lessens it to two. Um, and from what I've heard, the uh, shots that you get can be rather painful. Um, I think from what I've heard, at least one of the shots has to be on the spot where you've been bitten, which probably mm. doesn't feel too <laughs> great. Um, so... Yeah, it's a, a nice precaution. It's also um, nice that we get it through the zoo because it's 
not cheap either. So they cover For it. Sure. Damn, I'm glad uh, you haven't gotten rabies. I mean, that's a without being treated, it's fatal, yes. right? Yeah, it's 100% fatal. That is crazy. Yeah. Be safe out there. <laughs> so, so, Chris, thank you so much for hanging out with us. It's been yeah. two hours. Right. Um, so, if anyone wants to reach out to you or want to find you anywhere on the internet, how can they find you? Uh, I have a. Um, Facebook business page for Enterprise Snakes. Um, you can get in touch with me there, or you can just find me on my normal Facebook page for my own self and get in touch with me that way as well. Yeah, and check out his Red Factor buff. It is sweet <laughs> with him. And all the other buff stuff that uh, he's into. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of it on uh, my page, so. Awesome. As for us, PortCityPythons.com, PortCityPythons, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. You're listening to From the Ground Up podcast. Thank you so much, all of you, for being here. Chris, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And uh, we will catch you guys next week. Have a good one, Chris. You too.